Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. I really do not want to get our guest this week in trouble. Um, So I want to say what I'm going to say with an eye towards the kind of the political environment that we find ourselves in. But I really did enjoy serving with him in Congress. Um, We uh, sat on different sides of the aisle. We didn't always vote alike or even maybe even often vote alike. But I will tell you this, he was always prepared. Um, he always had something to say other than what you, uh, for the most part, had already heard. And he seemed to have this innate sense of fairness about him, um, which is what we ought to want in that line of work. But, you know, we don't always see it. So he's been on the television show before, so you can probably tell that I value his perspective. He was successful long before he ever got to Congress. And honestly, he's risen, at least on one committee, he's risen, you know, about as close to the top uh, as you can get uh, without being the chair or the ranking member. He's pretty close to the top. So I want you to have a little better insight into the person that is Congressman Jim Himes from the great state of Connecticut. How are you, Congressman? I'm doing well, Trey. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, I hope we can get to what you were talking about a little bit there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm as I think you are, uh, very, very concerned by our politics today, uh, where uh, the other side is evil. They're tre- treasonous. They're, you know, dehumanized. And the fun thing, and, and let me let me put a finer point on what you said. The fun thing about our relationship was, I mean, not only were we on the other side of the aisle, but we were on the other side for one of the two of the biggest fights probably we've had in a long time, which was the Benghazi investigations, and then of course all of the Trump investigations. And uh, and and there's something worthwhile in unpacking over the fact that we managed to remain civil and and go beyond maintaining respect to, to some sense of friendship, I think. So let's let's unpack that when we get to it. But I, I, I think that's a worthy project for the country at this moment in time. I do, too, particularly in light of what's uh, happened recently and uh, and most recently uh, in San Francisco um, with the family of uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But I want to take you on a tour of the world and then I want to come back to the United States because, look, You've devoted a lot of your time and energies in Congress to understanding what's going on around the world. And I I think our listeners, but I want to start with how you got where you are. Tell us, lay your modesty aside for just a second. Tell us about young Jim Himes growing up. I mean, what did you like? Uh, what, what, What were you like when you were in junior high and high school? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, man. All right. So I, I, I guess there's probably two or three things if you want to know where I come from today that's helpful to know. Uh, number one, um, I actually wasn't born in the United States. I was born in Lima, Peru, because my father was working with the Ford Foundation, which is a development group um, at the time. Um, and so for the first 10 years of my life, I lived outside of the United States, two American parents. Um, but that was important because I, I came to this country uh, at age nine or 10. And I think I had a little bit of the experience that an immigrant has coming to America. You know, it's just uh, startling the prosperity, the freedoms. I mean, where I grew up in, in, in or where I was very young and Peru and Colombia, you know, military police on street corners with uh, with with uh, ugly looking weapons were, were, were sort of standard fare. 
and so really a remarkable and, and I don't want you know, I'd been to the U.S. before I was 10, but I didn't really live here. Uh, and so that's point one. Uh, point two, and this is kind of funny, but probably less funny to me than it is to everybody else. But, you know, in as much as I had success in this world, <laughs> an awful lot of it was a mom who, uh, who when I brought home a B plus her her answer was, what the heck did you do wrong? <laughs> you know, and sometimes I wonder if, you know, behind all overachieving young people, there isn't a parent <laughs> sort of asking those hard questions. Um, and, uh, you know, we came back to the United States when I was uh, nine or 10 because my parents split up. And so my mom, uh, you know, raised me and my two uh, sisters um, uh, on her own, working mom. Uh, and like I said, she was the one who was, uh, you know, if it, if it wasn't a blue ribbon, she wanted, she wanted an explanation and accountability. And I, I still wonder at age 56 if I'm not struggling with that a little bit. Um, and then, you know, pointing you towards, so I went into business. I, I've always been interested in public policy, Trey, and I'll come back to that. But I, I also figured, you know, I shouldn't go right into it, right? Who, who, who am I to go, you know, voting on tax policy and Social Security and Medicare if I don't actually have some marketable skills and experience of the universe, right? So um, went into business. I was an investment banker for about 12 years. Did a lot of global investment banking. And, uh, you know, that was huge and powerful training for what I ultimately uh, decided to do, which was to uh, run for Congress. Uh, unlikely, um, ran against a Republican um, and, uh, you know, probably wouldn't have run but for Barack Obama at the top of the ticket and those coattails. Um, and then last thing I'll mention, just because it's important to me and, and, and maybe it's in, of interest to this podcast, you know, why, why a Democrat? Why, why run for Congress as a Democrat? Um, because I'm a pretty moderate guy, represent a pretty moderate place. But for me, the core is, um, and, and, and the reason I'm affiliated with the party I'm affiliated with is, uh, I, 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 I'm just sort of stunned by what government can do when it does good things. And that's everything from the civil rights movement of the 1960s, you know, which in many cases was a was a federal venture, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the remarkable work that was done in Appalachia during the Depression, like the TVA. Um, you know, I, I sometimes take out my iPhone and I wave it around, right? Because as you and I know, we get into one of the biggest arguments is what's the role of government? I'll take out my iPhone and I'll say, here's the example of how government and the private sector can work well together because pretty much everything that's cool about the iPhone that I'm using to talk to you right now, the semiconductor uh, inside it, the GPS system, which does location services, the uh, Siri, almost everything there was based on research that government organizations like DARPA did and then taken by, in this case, a company called Apple or Google or what have it and, and used to create monumental wealth. And so long story short, um, if you want to understand kind of where I come at the politics of the situation, it's a profound appreciation of what government can do when it does things right. And if you listen to that last little clause there, that's also an acknowledgement that it can do things wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, that probably drives an awful lot of what uh, what you and I worked uh, together on in, in, in my in, in, in our overlapping years in the Congress. You know, Jim, you just took the entire semester I teach uh, on a course called Congress, and you distilled it down to about two sentences. I have tried to impress upon my own students that it used to be the difference between the parties was just what you said, the size and scope and role of government. And that is a that is a fun, fair debate to have, and reasonable minds can come down differently on that issue, it, it it seems to not be that much so much anymore. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but it, the the role of government, the size, scope, you put your finger on the efficiency or the competency of government as kind of the end tagline. Oh, to be back to those to those days. You also said one other thing that your mom would ask questions if you brought home a B plus. <laughs> Uh, my parents did too, but it was mainly whether or not I had looked on somebody else's paper or how in the world I got a B plus. They were, it was similar reactions, but for completely different reasons, <laughs> mine were shocked. Your mom may have been a little bit disappointed. Where'd you go to college? Why'd you pick that college? And what major did you pick? 
Yeah, so I went to Harvard, um, and I have no better reason for having gone there that as a public school kid, a senior in, in a, in a, high, in a no-name public high school in central New Jersey, son of a gun, they let me in. And that was kind of end. That was kind of the end of it. I was like, what? You, you, some kind of crazy mistake was made, and they let me in. So that was, that was the entirety of my thought process, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, look, I grew up in a, real, in a very small little town called Pennington, New Jersey, after we moved from South America. And, you know, it was, it was idyllic. It was like, you know, it was a, an idyllic high school, you know, chasing girls, you know, the illicit, you know, six pack of beer underneath my, uh, underneath my spare tire in the back of my car. I mean, it was just your classic high school experience in a small town and son of a gun, Harvard let me in. And uh, so, yeah, there was no thought there. I was like, okay, I'm going. And, um, you know, while I was there, I really got into probably pretty traditional field for somebody who winds up doing what I'm doing, you know, studied a lot of history, a lot of a lot of political economy, a lot of economics, actually, um, which has stood me in in very good stead. And, you know, that then gets me to I uh, did two years of graduate school. Uh, and uh, then, like I told you, you know, thought it's I, I someday I knew I was someday going to get into public policy, but I thought, uh, you know, got to got to get some marketable skills, got to get some experience of the world before I start, you know, being one of the people who was determining the rules about how that world operates. Well, now, Jim, you kind of blew through that little two years of graduate school with kind of a throwaway line. It wasn't just two years of graduate school. Tell them, tell them what you did, because it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> so again, you know, one of these, one of these bank errors in your favor, uh, you know, when I was a senior, uh, I, I was awarded a Rhodes scholarship to go to, uh, uh, to go to Oxford for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, that was obviously a tremendous honor. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, part of it is, <laughs> uh, Cecil Rhodes and in his infinite, uh, colonialist wisdom a hundred years ago, cause you know, the scholarship was really built to, to sort of create this, you know, uh, cadre of people that would administer the British empire. This is, you know, whatever it was, 1910 or something, <laughs> you know, in his infinite wisdom, he said, you got to, you got to have success, not just in the classroom, but in, in manly sports or something like that. <laughs> so I happen to have been an athlete in college. And, uh, you know, between that and reasonably good grades, I, I, I did. I was awarded that scholarship and uh, spent an absolutely magnificent two years in a in a magical place. I mean, you know, for, for folks that haven't been there, I sort of start with Harry Potter and Hogwarts as what it what it looks like and what it feels like uh, there. And uh yeah, so that was a magnificent two years. Made some friendships there that are that are still very valuable, very very wonderful to me. And and um, then back to the states and uh, twelve years and twelve years in um, in banking. All right. Before I let you get away from being a Rhodes Scholar, uh, it was always my understanding that you had to be elite academically and a really really good athlete. So you said that you were a decent athlete, but what sport? were you good enough in to become a road scholar? So I was a rower, which is, um, which is, which is something that's pretty big at Harvard. Um, and it's very funny how that came about because I will own up to have been a remarkably mediocre athlete in high school. I was JV tennis and, and I was cross country and my best time ever in cross country was about, uh, you know, 18 and a half minutes across three miles, which is, which is, uh, which is mediocre at best. But it turns out that I am built to be a lightweight rower. And, uh, you know, uh, it's such an aggressive program in uh, there that uh, the uh, crew coach stands at the freshman dining hall. And if you're over 6'2 and look like you're in reasonably good shape, you get pulled out of line and, and asked to show up at the boathouse. So I did. And again, this is at age 18 or 19 and a long record of being a, a profoundly mediocre athlete. And it turns out I'm kind of built to be a rower. So I had some success in that area. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it was actually, I'm glad you brought it up because frankly, um, it was probably as valuable to me as the academics, you know, I, I, I just can't say enough about what sports do for a young person in terms of instilling character, leadership qualities, a sense of teamwork. It was really, uh, really essential to kind of who I became. And, you know, I know it's a sort of strange sport. Most Americans aren't on a Sunday afternoon watching rowing, but it's, uh, but it's, um, you know, it was just an absolutely wonderful formative experience for me. All right. It's very clear to me that you do not like talking about yourself. I, my, my, they tell me <laughs> modesty is a virtue. I think it's overrated, but you, but nonetheless, you have it. But before I let you quit talking about yourself, I, I do think people want to know. All right. 
really, really good in school academically, a good enough athlete to be a Rhodes Scholar. And yet you also in high school said you did your typical teenage things. How did you balance that time and be able to be able to get where you got? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember I remember high school being enormously stressful uh, until I got into college. And this probably takes us back to my mom, you know, she of the what went wrong with the old B plus thing. I remember it being really stressful. Um, And yeah, time management was hard. And, you know, at age 17, a 17 year old male is not equipped for uh, rationality, uh, care and prudence, as you and I both know. Uh, And so, yeah, it was challenging, frankly. but nonetheless, I did manage to, again, I look back on it, you know, memory is a funny thing, right? You thank, thank God the human species has a, has a formula in the brain that sort of makes you forget the really tough parts and you remember the wonderful stuff. Otherwise, none of us would have more than one kid, right? <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, no, I remember it fondly, but it was very stressful. And oh my gosh, I mean, this was also, this was 30 plus years ago. I look at I look at what kids go through today uh, in uh, in terms of the incredible competitiveness of getting into schools and stuff, and I, it looks ten times harder than when I did it. But yeah, I remember it as I'm sure you do too, as a you know, as a pretty stressful venture. And I didn't really sort of stop uh, feeling tense until that college acceptance letter came through. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. More of my interview with Congressman Jim Himes is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. So you are, you're a Rhodes Scholar. You're an investment banker. My guess, I mean, I've never met a poor investment banker. So my guess is things were going well. You were probably happy in life. And yet, was it, was it an issue that drove you to run? Was it timing that you always knew you wanted to, but you just had to pick the right time? I mean, how do you get from a really, really good life to running for Congress? Well, I would say it's two things, and maybe, maybe there are some life lessons here, um, but uh, let, let me say three things, and the third will sort of be a little bit political. But the first was um, I really enjoyed being a banker. I, I, I don't think there are many better places to get trained than an environment that is working 18 hours a day and has very high standards, and that was where I, I worked. So superb training for me. Um, you're right. Certainly in the later years, you, you, you make a little money, which is which is nice. It's taken some of the pressure off of educating a couple of daughters and that sort of thing. Uh, but but honestly, Trey, what what I knew uh, from the start was that while I enjoyed it um, and, and got an awful lot out of it, it didn't move my soul. You know, uh, fascinating stuff. I loved learning how to negotiate it. But at the end of the day, at the end of the week, if what I'd done was help advise Procter & Gamble on buying a Brazilian detergent business, which is what I was doing, um, you know, that was all right. Felt, felt, felt good. But at the end of the day, it didn't move my soul. You know, I didn't, I, I just sort of thought, okay, this is right for right now, but someday I want to sort of have a little bit bigger impact. Um, and I, it just always gnawed at me when I was a banker and I was a young guy, I was in my twenties. So it's okay. Right. You don't, you don't, it's a mistake to think that you need to constantly be out there making the universe a better place. But I just, I always sensed that there was a, a more impactful field to play on. And so that was number one. And when the moment came, um, it was in a real downturn in the markets in 02. The tech market had sort of come apart, and you know, all of a sudden there just wasn't much business. When the moment came to 02, it was a in 02, it was kind of a, a good moment to make a jump into uh, uh, what I did for a couple of years, which was nonprofit housing. Um, and uh, that was fun. I worked in New York uh, trying to help uh, build um, the kind of housing that allows people that aren't wealthy to live in a community like New York. But then, and here's maybe where the other life lesson is. Um, it's 07, 2007. And I've always had this interest in public policy. And I realized two things. Number one, I always figured I'd go to work for the Department of Treasury or Department of Justice or whatever. And then I realized, you know, when you do that, you're working for the president. That's fine. That's a great job. But elected office 
you don't have a boss. You know, you're autonomous, really. I mean, not really, because as you know well, you're you're responsible to the uh, to the whims and vigors of 750,000 people, but you don't have a boss. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And um, and here's here's the life lesson. Um, I guess I was I was probably 40 at the time, and I thought, you know, I've got this dream, and I've always kind of taking the prescribed path. I got a path. I got good grades, you know, got the good SAT scores, did what I was told. And here I'm at a juncture where I'm going to, I'm going to run this race and I'm going to lose it because the incumbent that I beat in 2008 had never, he, he, he just, he'd turned away all comers. And, uh, and I thought I'm going to lose this thing, but here's, here's the thing, you know, when I'm 75 and sitting on my rocking chair on the porch, I will at least have the self-respect of knowing that I gave it a go, that I gave it a try. And I lost, but I didn't stay, I didn't stay out of the arena, right? And so I'm very, very proud of that decision because I took it knowing I was going to lose. Um, now, as it happened, some crazy stuff happened, the nomination of Barack Obama that allowed me to win. Um, but I'm very proud of that decision because I just said, you know, this is the moment I'm getting off that path, that conveyor belt, which has been so clearly delineated for me. Um, and we're going to take a swing for the fences and probably fail. But boy, we'll feel good about having taken that swing. So Mrs. Himes, um, foolishly went along with the plan, <laughs> duped her. Um, and, and, and there we were, it was literally off to the races. You know, what I find most fascinating about that, Jim, is how you define success for your own life. And it wasn't whether or not you want a vote tally. It was looking back on your life, as you say, a 75 year old and saying, at least I tried. The ability to define success on your own terms and not let other people do it. I mean, it happened that you actually won. But from what I hear you saying is you won when you decided to try. It, that, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm grateful for your praise for those things that by traditional measures, you know, whether it was getting into a good school or a road scholarship. Yeah, I'm proud of those. But, but candidly, you put your finger on it. Um, uh, I am most proud of having taken a decision that was stepping off the prescribed path because back to that mom with the big angry about a B plus, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, gosh, have I lived my own life? You know, have I had agency here or have I been living to achieve the standards set by our society or by my mom? And, and I think the reason I think there may be a larger lesson there is that I think that's a useful exercise for anyone. It may not be your mom. It may be the hope that if you just work another 20 years, you'll bank enough money to buy that really nice house. And then you do that. And 20 years later, you got that really nice house and you say, hey, this isn't this, this isn't obviously what I what I wanted to feel like. So I, I, I think I think we've both put our finger on something here, which is, you know, uh, take take that risk. Uh, try to get outside of the prescribed path and, and be and be thoughtful about it. All right. It took me a long time to get you there, but. You're finally in Congress. I know you serve on more than the Intel Committee, but that's the one I'm most familiar with. If you were to take us on a tour, and by the way, Jim, I'll say this, I'm not going to out any of your colleagues, but when I talk to people on the Intel Committee, and I don't want to get you in trouble in your district, your name almost always comes up as someone that folks on the other side of the aisle uh, respect your preparation. They respect the way you interact with them. I know that's a terrible thing to say in our current modern political <laughs> environment, and I really don't want to get you in trouble by saying that in your district. But I, I think it. I think you ought to know that privately, not publicly, where people say, "My friend from Connecticut." Privately, your colleagues on the other side of the aisle respect your work on the Intelligence Committee. So, with that, take us on a tour of the world. What keeps you up at night? What excites you? What what should we know? Yeah, great, great question. So let me say a couple of maybe slightly disconnected things, and 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 you you're gonna you're gonna relate to this because of course you spent years doing this work too. I often get that question: What keeps you up at night? And the answer is there's no uh, uh, there's no shortage of things to worry about. You know, when you're on the intelligence committee, as you know, Trey, you go to a you know to a set of offices that are behind a heavy steel door with no windows. 
And people from the organizations like the CIA and NSA show you really scary stuff. They show you what terrorists are plotting, how, to, how they want to kill Americans. They're showing what the Chinese, the weaponry that they're developing or the Russian intentions. And so, so it is, it is uh, a really detailed look at an awful lot of people who wish us ill. On the flip side of this, and, and this is really important, and you know it, you also get exposed to the absolutely remarkable countermeasures that we have. And, you know, I have, even though my job is oversight and your job was oversight, and so we're, we, we have to be, we have to have an attitude of skepticism towards the Intelligence Committee if we're going to do oversight right. You know, the men and women who, in anonymity, because if you're in the CIA, you're not out there putting your activities on your resume, who risk their lives in places like, you know, Karachi or, 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 or Somalia, to go up against those threats is really remarkable. I mean, it, it may not be quite James Bond stuff. James Bond is Hollywood, but it's of that order, right? I mean, our technological and human capabilities that are deployed to make us safe um, are just really remarkable. And, you know, fortunately, Americans get a good look at, at what can be talked about, which is our military. And, you know, every, every week or so, there's another story of the incredible capability of our men and women in uniform. But um, anyway, my point is that, yeah, it's a scary world, but oh my gosh, have we got good people and good technology deployed against it. Um, and then the other thing I'd say there, uh, and, and, and by the way, I think, I don't know if you felt this way, but to me, it's the most interesting job that a member of Congress can have, right? Because again, we got to remember, maybe we'll come back to this, that it's about oversight. And you know, oversight of J.P. Morgan Chase, which I guess I do on the Financial Services Committee, is one thing, right? You know, J.P. Morgan Chase, if they get it wrong, they can get it very wrong, as we saw in 07. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the Wall Street Journal is looking at them. The New York Times is looking at them. You know, Fox and CNN are all looking at them. Nobody's looking at the folks that are, you know, going after terrorists in Syria, except for a handful of members of Congress. And, and that weight sits on your shoulder, right? Because as you and I both know, and as the American public knows to some extent, you know, we're taking leadership lethal action, which is a fancy way of saying we're killing people. Um, and, you know, we're surveilling people. And obviously, we got to be real careful about who those people are that we're surveilling and that we're not impinging on American rights. And I'll, I'll tell you, that feels like a really good job, which, as you know, if you're in the Congress, you do have days where you ask yourself, well, I spoke at the Rotary lunch and I, and I, and I, and I spent three hours, you know, trying to raise money. Did I actually do anything useful today? And in that context, uh, you know, intelligence work always feels uh, always feels important. Is there, you know, I seem to recall that we were asked to kind of pick a region of the world and concentrate on that, at least on the Republican side, they ask us to. Is there a region that you um, have either been assigned or kind of taken that you wanted to be an expert in? Yeah, you know, we moved a little since you left. We moved a little away from regions, which are important. You know, we're 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 doing things in South America that look very different than what we're doing in Ukraine or, or the Middle East. Um, but we moved more towards sort of, uh, you know, concepts. So one area that I've devoted a lot of time to, um, which gets pretty nerdy pretty quickly, um, is technology. And the reason that's important is because, um, you know. For the first time ever, we have a technological peer, China. And for the first time ever, technology is everything. I mean, if you think about when you and I were kids, you know, you had a television set, you listened to the radio, you drove a car, right? Today, everything we do um, is monitored, uh, you know, by Facebook or by whoever, you know, keeps track of our debit cards and credit cards. Technology is everything. And we have this peer that does that rarely wishes us well. And so that's a long winded way of saying I've taken a real interest in the fact that if we don't stay innovative, if we don't stay a step ahead of the rest of the world, as we always have been on technology, we're going to have the kind of surprise that our parents had in the 1950s when they looked up at the sky and saw a Russian satellite named Sputnik circling the globe. And we just, you know, it's one thing for if that's a satellite, it's a totally different thing if that is a hypersonic weapon or a, an altered virus that could wipe out hundreds of millions. So anyway, I've taken a real interest in making sure that we stay innovative on the technology, which is hard because you and, as you and I both know, uh, Trey, government may do some things well. But being really innovative on the cutting edge of change is not one of them. All right. I want to ask you, I hope it doesn't come across as a philosophical question. 
Um, but even if it does, I know you're up for it. Do you ever wonder all of the advancements, all of the, the evolution of the human condition, and yet war and the prospect of war and conflict still seems to be one of the dominant themes? And when we can do all these things with medicine and technology, and yet it is war and power and might that still gets most of our attention. Is that is I guess it's always going to be that way. You know, you put your you put your finger on something profound. Um, I'm an optimist, as you may sense from from our conversation. But I have a fundamental concern, which is that our our technological capabilities have given us almost godlike power. And I hope nobody regards that as sort of blasphemous, but we you know, we now have the capability to destroy the globe many times over. We now have the capability to create organisms, to alter viruses, to sort of target viruses off certain populations. I mean, these are almost godlike powers, but we do not have godlike wisdom. You know, you and you and me, and I, I would argue that we're actually some of the more evolved examples of our species. You know, we still are primarily driven by stuff that kept us alive in the African savanna 40,000 years ago. You know, uh, a sense of tribalism, uh, uh, a natural suspicion of people who are different than our tribe. And so I worry all the time that we that our technological capabilities have gotten well beyond our internal abilities to manage them. And, you know, we, I'll, I'll give you two examples that are sort of interesting. One is a success story, which, of course, is the fact that we didn't blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons. Right. I mean, we went. 70 years with the capability to extinguish life on earth and for all the lunacy of the cold war and you know whatever you had you know all the soviet union u.s stuff we we never let that technology end us um but that is an ongoing question and and i think it's serious i mean bring it home here let me bring it home um you know it's something alcohol you know alcohol is something that humans have lived with for a long time a couple thousand years but it's a technology that destroys an awful lot of us, right? Because, and, and maybe that's a silly example. I just sort of thought of it, but, you know, because it's, it's, not, it's not altering genes. But my point is that we can interact with things that, that can result in, in real damage. And I, and I really believe, and, and by the way, I should clarify, uh, n nothing is quite as happy to me as a, as a nice Manhattan at the end of the day, but you get my point here. Um, you know, my point is that I really do worry that we've, evolved our technological capability way in front of where we've evolved our level of wisdom and values. No, I, I, I think you can use alcohol, you can use pharmaceuticals, which can both relieve pain and create, and create addictions that, 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 you know, scar you for life. To me, the technology is benign. How you use it um, is what gets us in trouble. Social media, you could use social media, yeah. to let people know that there's a threat somewhere. That's a great use of it. Or you never would, but people use it to belittle others, to to bully others. So I, I am fascinated by whether or not the human condition has evolved as much as, uh, as our technology has, and I fear it has not. So let me, I want to, there are a couple of things in the news I want to ask you about in your intel realm, and then I want to ask you a broader uh, question about the state of politics. Uh, I'm, just, I'm going to pick a couple, and they're all in the news, so I don't want, I wouldn't ask, and you wouldn't tell me something that wasn't in the news. Saudi Arabia, our relationship with them, um, you know, folks read that maybe they're talking to Russia, maybe we uh have been good friends to them their human rights record is is abysmal um how do you how do you sort out our relationship with saudi arabia yeah yeah it's a tough one um you know for for a very long time obviously we have been hostage to the uh energy the oil uh that saudi arabia has and that we need and we see that playing out all over the world. Germany with Russia is another example. Um, and let's let's also be fair here. As you and I both know, we do an awful lot of counterterrorism work with the Saudis. Now, there it gets a little sticky, right? Because the Saudis have always a little bit like the Pakistanis. We've we've never been sure that they're 100 percent, you know, behind what we would define as good counterterrorism, to put it to put it about as diplomatically as I can. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess the lesson I would draw here, uh, Trey, and we, we, we saw it, you know, with the killing of Khashoggi, we saw it with the decision of Saudi Arabia to really stand with Putin's interests on, uh, you know, as Putin sort of devastated a, a, an innocent uh, democratic country, Ukraine. Um, you know, we, we, we always we, we always, I think, make a mistake when we get overly close with regimes that don't share our values. And and I understand, look, I, I, I was a kid in the Cold War. Right. So I understand that, you know, we had some pretty unsavory allies against the Soviet Union. And there's an argument to be made for that. But to me, it kind of feels like on so many of these situations, we ought to be doing everything we can to reduce the influence that Saudis have on on your average American's day-to-day life. And and yes, that means domestic sources of energy, um, including gas and oil. Hopefully it means evolving really rapidly away from the gas and oil that 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 over time will destroy our planet. Um, and you know, that will ultimately allow us, I think, to be a little less beholden to a guy like uh, the Crown Prince, um, who is, you know, I, I, I constantly hold out hope for him. He's a young guy. I don't believe he's irredeemable, but, uh, you know, it would give us more of an opportunity to kind of shape his values in a more enlightened direction. North Korea, I, it, it vexes me. I mean, it, we're, we're sort of told ignore bad actors, don't give them attention. But the more you seem to ignore him, the more he does provocative things to get attention. Uh, we've got what tens of millions of people living just, I don't know how many people live in Seoul, South Korea, but it's a lot. So their, their risk to, to our allies, how would you, how can we, can we at all navigate the conundrum that is North Korea? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, that normalizing that relationship and making North Korea sane has defied every president in my memory, you know, from Donald Trump right back to, you know, gosh, Richard Nixon is probably the first president I can remember. I, I guess we could probably spend an hour on this. Let me spend let me give you 30 seconds, which is to do it injustice. But um, two thoughts. Number one, we can deter. Uh, and we can make it very clear that an attack on South Korea or worse yet, an attack, you know, a missile attack on the West Coast of the United States would mean extinction for the North Koreans. That deterrence is part of the reason we managed the old Cold War well. And then number two, and here's the interesting thing, right, because we're getting into a world where China is rapidly becoming our enemy, which I think we need to be very careful about. And there's there's plenty of good reasons to be angry at China. No question. But at the end of the day. You know, China has, as they used to say, the whip hand on North Korea, right? They've got the bridge across which goods pass. You know, they're the superpower in the region. And so it's a mistake for us to think that we alone are going to fix North Korea. Um, I don't know if North Korea can be fixed, but what I do know is that if it is going to be fixed, the, the Chinese will either be in the lead or they will be absolutely critical partners to make in that very dangerous country somewhat more normal. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I'm going to finish by asking about something that vexes me and it's more on my side than yours. So I don't know that you can help me. Um, but I wonder, particularly in the last nine to 12 months, People who kind of equivocate on who they think should win between Russia and Ukraine. I swear, I never thought I would hear that. I never thought I would hear that we're just not sure who we're pulling for. And I don't hear it a lot, but I do hear some voices that aren't just aren't sure whether or not we should be helping Ukraine um, and to what extent. How do you break down that that invasion, conflict, war, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, in, in all fairness, I do think there is a very small percentage of people on the extreme ends of the political spectrum who are very skeptical of our assistance to Ukraine. Um, I, on my side, you know, you had 30 progressives sign a letter, which, you know, is a complicated thing. But it, I'll tell you, at a minimum, it was very poorly timed saying, you know, we should negotiate with the Russians. Uh, I was talking to a Quaker the other day, and, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Quakers, but, just, you know, I just, it was hard for me to connect with the notion that we ought to just sort of shut this down. You know, and, and here I'll tread a little bit humbly, but it does feel to me like on the right wing, you've got a crew 
and I'm not going to use names here, but that admire, well, let me use one name. I mean, frankly, Donald Trump, you know, who have this sort of visceral admiration for power and strength. And you see it in the president and the former president's clear admiration for Putin's ability to do whatever the heck he wanted to. You see it in, you know, a senator like Ted Cruz, you know, fanboying, you know, heavily produced videos of, you know, very masculine Russian troops. By the way, it turns out those same Russian troops can have would have their asses kicked by the Rhode Island National Guard. But, you know, Ted Cruz is looking at these slickly produced videos saying, now here's an army. They're not woke, you know. And so it does feel to me like on the right there. And, and I think it runs a little deeper than that. And, and I'm going to stop talking soon because you, you, you understand this better than I do. But it's a you know, Putin is standing up um, against a lot of the social change that the West has undertaken. I mean, every time he opens his mouth, he talks about gay parades. Um, you know, he talks about traditional religious values. And I do think that that kind of strength in combination with a, a look back at a simpler, more conservative world does have some appeal on the on the on the right wing. Well, maybe the maybe the problem, Jim, is that I'm not going to church enough because back when I attended more regularly, I did not. I never recall a sermon about poisoning your enemies, uh, poisoning reporters, um, oppressing people who have a different point of view. So what religion that is that people are admiring, I, I either wasn't paying attention during that sermon or I missed or I was playing golf. When I think of Vladimir Putin, I do not think of the uh, teachings of uh, of Jesus Christ or, or any church I would want to be part of. <laughs> and Trey, I think, you know, here, here it'd be easy to get into politics. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy obviously drew an awful lot of attention by his statement that there would not be a blank check for Ukraine. I think you and I both know what's going on there. I don't think Kevin in his heart of hearts has any hesitation about the importance of backing uh, Ukraine. Uh, but as you and I also know, it's quite possible that he'll end up with a very narrow majority uh, in the House in a week. Um, and if that happens, um, he will need every single member, including some of the more, uh, shall we say, flamboyant members. <laughs> and so I, I, I think um, I, I, I think, again, I think it's important. I told the Ukrainians there when I was there, including the president a week ago, that he can have confidence that there is some opposition to aid the Ukraine, but it is the fringe of the fringe in the United States. All right. That leads perfectly to, to the last thing I want to ask you about, because when I read or heard Kevin's comments, I, I took them entirely differently. I took them as a guy trying to thread the needle between helping uh, an ally in Ukraine and some fiscal responsibility that, you know, it's kind of like Sandy uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy or any of the any of the the relief packages. Um, yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it on the high side of fair, but don't put in stuff that has nothing to do with hurricane relief. I I I viewed it that way, which gets I guess to the point of how we are more likely to view things in a light most favorable to people we like uh, or know. Has politics changed since you got in? And what are the what are the things that you lament the most? So young Congressman Jim Himes versus where we are in 2022, how has it changed and has any of it been for the better? Yeah, yeah, that's a super interesting question. Um, hard to answer in a, in a quick uh, uh, in, in a quick soundbite. But, but no, look, you're absolutely right. Um, I read Kevin's statement several times and, and he basically said the Ukrainians shouldn't expect a blank check. The words he used there are are fine. Nobody should expect a blank check. But context matters, right? Context matters. Um, and, um, you know, I wish at a moment that calls for clarity, I wish that an obvious statement would have been accompanied with um, – you know, a clear statement in support of Ukraine and condemning Russia. And I think leaders need to be real careful about that. And, you know, again, I think you and I both know what was going on there. You know, he was sort of trying to keep a door open with some fairly flammable people that he may need down the road. Um, so so I don't disagree with what you're saying, but context matters. Um, 
you know, here's another area, and boy, I, I bring this up at great peril, but I think it's something for us to think about. Um, here's another set of words where context, I think, is everything, or at least matters a lot. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about Kanye, Kanye West, or Ye, or whatever we're supposed to call him now, you know, wearing that White Lives Matters shirt. I've been fascinated by that for a while because the words themselves – White lives matter. They're irrefutable. Of course, all lives matter. But in the context of our racial politics, when white lives matter is seen as a rejoinder, maybe even a rebuttal to the 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 cry that black lives matter, which comes out of the experience of black Americans over a very long period of time, words that are otherwise technically unimpeachable become what those words have become, which is a slogan for the reactionary right. So I'm just sort of musing right now, but I think if we unpack these things, and the reason I bring up a very controversial subject is I think if we unpack these things and seek to understand them, that may be one of the first steps in, in, in lowering the temperature of the rhetoric. And, and that leads me to the actual answer to your question, which is, um, you know, there have always been um, uh, aggressive debates, arguments inside the Congress. What's different today, um, frankly, the, it is fair to say that the Democratic Party has drifted left. You know, we didn't have a squad 10 years ago. And you can, as many of my constituents do, disagree with the squad. But at the end of the day, the squad and uh, I mean, let's just, you know, uh, AOC, right? AOC wants single payer health care. That's her thing. Now, by the way, I'm a Democrat. I don't support single payer health care for a whole bunch of reasons. But but anyway, that's where she's at. Right. On the other side, and I'm going to say this humbly because, A, I don't understand it. And B, I think it's real important that we speak with humility about this very dangerous situation we're in today. Feels to me like the Republicans have split between the traditional Republicans. This is the old Reaganite Republicans. Um, and the Trump Republicans. And, you know, there is 10 fairly famous people. It's the Matt Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world who are really about that other instinct. And that creates, I think, a lot of um, a lot of uh, controversy and, and, and conflict inside the Republican Party. And what worries me is that it, do, it, it does tend to be that side of the right of the Republican Party that is using language that is over the top in a dangerous way. You know, Democrats are traitors. They're groomers. You know, Elise Stefanik, who you and I served with on uh, the Intelligence Committee, who is out of Harvard University, implied that Democrats are groomers. And she's the number three. I don't even really understand what groomers mean, but I do know that it, it, it points to a very, very ugly direction. And so my conclusion here, Trey, and, and, and I'm a Democrat, and I will readily admit that I regard the world through a lens. My conclusion is that the work that needs to be done is a little bit more on the right because my fringy people want the same health care system that lives in the United Kingdom today. The right's fringy people are promoting ideas that Democrats are child molesters and that we're traitors. And again, I say that humbly because I think it's important to have these conversations honestly and with humility. But I don't know how we're going to fix that, honestly, Trey. Um, and I do worry about it. And I'm, I'm not going to say that the attack on Paul Pelosi was necessarily a linear result of that. But I will tell you that the Congress is a much tenser place than it was when you were there because people are scared. I have picked up on that from the folks that I keep. I, you know, I remember we had a hearing one time. Uh, Jim, and it, it was a public hearing, which we didn't have a ton of, but we had one. We were marking up a bill or or something, and I thought the way something was framed could have been more fair. I, ju I just thought it could have been more fair, and I said that. I said I thought it, it wasn't you that did it, but but I said I, I just I think someone was doing exactly what you just put your finger on, which is going as far as you could to the partisan side. And I may not remember anything else from my eight years, but I remember you seeking recognition and you said, I get that. I get why you took it that way. And it was a remarkable moment of fairness where you actually tried to make an effort. Peter Welch did this on a committee that I'm on. I, I know you know Peter. I think the world of him. 
He said, you know, I'm just going to spend a moment trying to look at life through the other people's eyes, through other people's prisms. But Jim, you're a lonely guy if you try to do that in Congress. I mean, you're going to be a lonely guy. So when did it stop being a virtue to try to understand where the other side is coming from? Not to agree with it. You mentioned Kanye West and wearing White Lives Matter. The, the thing that went through my head when I saw that is why? 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 Why did you feel the need to do that? What was your purpose? What was your point? Uh, because I don't understand the point of doing that other than fame, which to me may may be the ultimate political virtue right now, just to be famous. Exactly. Well, you really put your finger on something important there. And I, I sometimes underappreciate this. Um, you, you asked a, a question a few minutes ago, what's different today? And the answer to that question, there's a lot we could unpack there. You know, there are a lot of Americans who are feeling economically uncertain. There's a lot of Americans, particularly on your side of the aisle, who have looked at the social change that we've experienced in the last generation and just are bewildered by it. I have sympathy for those things, but the piece that we don't talk nearly enough about is that I don't think it was true 20 years ago that you had people who were in Congress to be um, conflict merchants, and they certainly did not have the tools, the Instagram, the Twitter, uh, the, the Facebook that could make you instantly famous if you said something outrageous. and. You know, I remember back in the day, I tell this story all the time, and it's only gotten a thousand times worse. Back in the day, there was a period of time when um, in, a, in a space of about two weeks, a Republican member got on the floor of the House of Representatives. Or no, I remember what it was. It was it was the member who shouted at the new president during the State of the Union speech. You lied. I remember my heart died a little bit when that happened. But here's the thing, like two weeks later, a Florida representative went on the floor and said the Republican health care plan, this was the debate over the Affordable Care Act, is don't get sick. And if you get sick, die quickly. Now, the reason I tell those two stories is that in both cases, the rhetoric was beyond irresponsible and dishonest and inflammatory, but it made them famous. And you know what they did with that fame? Both of those members turned around and raised millions of dollars because of this, you know, instant fame thing you can do on social media. So, you know, gosh, someday we'll have an hour long conversation about what in the world we do about that. But you and I both know that there are maybe a little bit more evident on the right these days than on the left, although, you know, the squad has gotten real famous. You know, there is absolutely a new breed in Congress, which is uninterested largely in the ugly, messy, frustrating work of actually making change, but really wants to raise a lot of hell uh, in public. That's a big change. All right. I want to end on a happy note because I've been depressing. I, I'm a cynic. You're an optimist. And cynicism always wins, Jim. It always wins. I always <laughs> can bring the optimist down. I want to end on a happy note. Do you have a dream job? And if so, what would it be? Because when I hear you talk, I hear, I think, a uh, CIA director. I think I think something in Intel. So I, I don't, I don't hear the chairman of Goldman Sachs, but maybe that is your dream job. I don't know. Do you have one? No, you know, so thank you for the question. Uh, I've got two, I've got two, and they're probably going to come in succession. Um, number one, what's, what's my biggest frustration in the Congress today? It is that grinding incremental frustrating thing where it seems, seems like you spend 10 days and nothing really changes for the better. So someday I want a president of the United States, doesn't matter which party, probably more likely to be a Democrat. I want a president of the United States to point at me and say, Himes, you're going to go fix Central America or Himes, go negotiate a trade deal with, you know, Europe or whatever. I like I want to be given a specific job and the authority to get it done, because what I'm hungry for right now is executive like ability to just get something important done. Right. So that's number one. Uh, and so, yeah, at some point I'll say enough of this. And, and, you know, Mr. President, go, 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 go charge me with an impossible task. The other thing I want to do, uh, Trey, um, and I wonder I wonder if at some point, well, you appear to be doing it. Um, uh, at some point, I'm going to do a little teaching. You know, I, I, I just there's something about really thinking hard about how you move young people, how you explain things um, that, that really appeals to me. 
Uh, I think it's important. I think it's fun. I think you don't really know what you're talking about until you can teach it to somebody else. Um, and so I, at some point in my life, I'm going to figure out a, a, figure out a way to do a little teaching. I don't have a PhD, but you know, at some point I'm going to figure out how to do what it sounds like you might be doing a little of and, and trying to, trying to impart some, uh, some knowledge and wisdom to younger people. I do it at the, uh, at the undergraduate level at a small liberal arts school, uh, in my hometown. And I do it at the law school and my goal, Jim, and I've been successful is I don't think the students have any idea what I really think because uh, that I'm not there to tell them what I think. I, I am there to make them think. And you got to tell me. I always say you got to tell me why. I mean, you, you believe this. It can't be because you read it somewhere. I mean, why do you believe it? I teach a class on Congress, which they would they would love to hear from you. Uh, but I am not going to look. You guys have really tough schedules. I'm not going to add a trip to the upstate of South Carolina to it, although you are always welcome, including by Zoom. You would be great, and you would love it. Last question I'm going to ask you. Is there a book you've read that, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I won't say changed your life, but maybe, I mean, you mentioned the peace you had with running regardless you thought you were going to lose you expected to lose and yet it was still a victory for you because you had the courage to run is there a is there a book that changed some part of your life that you would recommend for others wow okay um very very interesting um let me throw two out there in terms of personal growth I would tell you that, uh, and, 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 and this is an easy one. This is an easy one. Um, and it's easy for people to do. And most people have already done it. Um, but the, uh, their Chernow book on, uh, on Hamilton, which was made into the, uh, you know, made into the, the play Alexander Hamilton, um, had a profound impact on me because here's a guy who is really ambitious and yet he has a powerful set of principles that he subscribes to. And it just so happens that that guy, Alexander Hamilton, was ambitious and had those principles at a time when it changed the universe by establishing this country. And it, the book humanizes him. It's hard on his fault. Uh, and, and I would recommend that to anybody who is interested in our history uh, or interested in a remarkable human story. And then the other one, which is a little less about personal growth, but really, I think, critical to understanding some of the wiring that underlies the system that feels so broken today. Um, I would recommend a book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, you may have read it. It's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And Haidt, Jonathan Haidt takes... He's a he's some kind of a, a you know sort of psychobiologist or something, um, and he really unpacks the software which drives the behavior. He talks about things about how like the conservative mind leans towards hierarchy and order, whereas the more liberal mind leans towards concepts like justice. Um, and he does it in a very neutral way, right? He says, look, here's a value set and different people in different political positions value some of these values more than others. And I'll tell you, I still keep coming back to that because it just really describes how you might understand somebody who thinks differently than you do. So I just can't recommend reading that at this point in time enough, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Well, that is a happy note to end on because I cannot remember the last time I learned something from someone who believes exactly what I believe and doesn't know any more than I know. So I, I just, I, I, even if I don't agree, sometimes, especially when I don't agree with the person that I'm talking to, I still learn something. If nothing else, it makes me a better advocate for what I do learn. Maybe that's just the lawyer. Maybe it ruined me doing that, but understanding, boy, if you can understand people uh, and what makes them do what they do, uh, you have a head up, uh, a head start on life. Uh, Jim Himes, you are uh, so good to come on uh, the TV show. People um, appreciate it. Uh, this is not an environment where there's a lot of reward for going on. If you're a Republican going on MSNBC, if you're a 
Democrat coming on Fox. There's not a ton of reward, but you do it. And I appreciate you doing it. And I look forward to following. They say you're going to be in the minority here in a couple of months. I don't know what's going to happen, but you're going to be there. I I assume, I assume you're going to win your race. I, I hadn't heard that it's one of the targeted races for uh, the NRCC, but I assume you're going to be there come January. Is that fair? Uh, likely, likely. Um, and uh, if I'm in the minority, uh, I will uh, I will have the time to get down to South Carolina to to have this conversation in front of some of your students and, and, and have a good meal that I can't get in the wintertime in New England. <laughs> I would love that. I cannot thank you enough. All the best to you and your family. And I look forward to visiting with you soon. Thank you, Trey. Take care now. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. And thank you for joining us and listening to Congressman Jim Himes from the great state of Connecticut. I look forward to seeing you next week. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.